Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming out to this most recent episode of the Other Life Podcast. The podcast where I talk with all kinds of interesting, sometimes random, sometimes not random, uh, internet people and representatives of all the little subcultures that I'm interested in and the vague uh, micro ideologies that I'm interested in, different occupational strata and all different types of, yeah, uh, subsectors of society we explore on this podcast. Today, we are joined by Nicole Williams, who is... Primarily, in my mind, you are primarily a Twitter personality. I forget how I know you. I think we first got hooked up to do this podcast because you literally tweeted, I want to do a podcast. And then someone, I think, retweeted you and mentioned me. And I was like, yeah, yeah. sure. Let's do a podcast. Amazing. The best way to start out. You don't remember who that was, do you? I think it was Default Friend. Oh, yeah. I think she de- she deact. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Her her activ- activation is always chaotic. So I don't want to start things off in a in a super inside baseball way, but I'm kind of curious, how do you know Default Friend, aka Katya? That is a great question. I honestly have no clue how we originally crossed paths. Cool. No I worries. Tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I don't remember how I met you. I don't know that much about you, but that's the fun of this podcast. I, 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 regularly, talk, I regularly talk with people that I really only know them as a vague Twitter persona or some kind of internet persona. And then the fun of this is to try to get to the bottom of who you are and what you're all about. And uh, yeah, learn, learn a thing or two from you. So uh, first of all, thank you for coming out, Nicole. Of course. Thanks for having me. Of course. So you are in the VC world, roughly. Is that right? I believe you are actually right now acting as an investor or you're on an investment team. How would you describe it? Doing seed stage startup research. Is that right? Yeah, I'm an investor at Compound. Um, I invest in yeah, seed and pre-seed frontier tech companies, which is like anybody who has like super technical, uh, whether it's a co-founder, whatever, robotics, AI, ML, avatar-based social media, all sorts of stuff. Right on. And how long have you been doing this game? Exactly two months. Two months. Okay, so brand new. So what were you doing before yeah. that? Oh, man. Um, before that, I was at Lambda School, actually. I don't know if you've... Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Right uh, on. Yeah. Cool. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but that was an experience. Um, yeah, let's definitely. Let, that's a great place to start. Let's talk about that. So, for people who don't know about Lambda School, it's one of these uh, very interesting startups that is basically trying to disrupt uh, education. And what Lambda School does, I mean, Nicole can tell you much more about it, but what Lambda School does is uh, basically they will give you a uh, education in fields such as software engineering, and I think they do a few other fields also, and. Basically, if you get a good job, they take a cut <laughs> of it. And that's their business model. Their business model is getting you a good job. And that's how they get paid. So the incentives are arguably very well aligned, much more so than uh, traditional education. And yeah, they're they're very well known at the moment for being uh, yeah, a very kind of impressive, interesting, and uh, disruptive startup that 
took off very quickly with uh, a, a relatively uh, low resource, I think, rather bootstrapped system where they were just basically using Slack and Zoom and it just kind of glued some things together to, to launch. And they got off the ground very quickly. And I've heard very good things. I think there's, there are some critiques. So uh, we could have an interesting conversation about this. So let's start there. How was Lambda yeah. School for you? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is, yeah. So I guess for context, like my educational path has been all over the place. I went to hyper conservative uh, Liberty University, which is like the largest evangelical university, I think, in the world. I'm a Christian, uh, but Liberty did not work out for me for a variety of reasons. And so I left there and have been like to all sorts of like online universities and Coursera and whatever, interested in boot camps for a while. And Lambda School stuck out to me because um, their curriculum is actually pretty solid. I've been into a lot of friends doing data science, applied mathematics, whatever. Uh, what like, track did you do? Data science. Okay. Yeah. Right so for a while, I had been interested in machine. I went through an incubator at a medical or an accelerator at a medical uh, Innova hospitals in East Coast, like three, I thought was interesting. Um, and for a long time, I tried to put together my own syllabi for college because basically I couldn't pay for college myself. I like separated from my family, was like living on my own, trying to get an education. Like I had friends going to really good schools. And so I would take their syllabi, put together my own syllabi, put together readings, like ask people sort of like gorilla style what they thought I should learn. That took a lot of time, it turned out. So Lambda School curriculum, that was great. That was like, um, However, it's kind of a shit show internally, yeah. for sure. And up until recently, I would say, if you are very motivated to learn, you need accountability and you need the structure, go for it. But I found out, so the structure about their ISA is that technically you don't pay for it. Um, you don't pay for it until you get a job, a job over a certain salary. And you're also not supposed to pay for it unless you get a job in the field you studied. And obviously, that's a little bit hard to enforce and or like make sure people are being truthful about. But obviously got right. a job as an investor. My day-to-day -day is not doing the science at all. And so went through the appropriate guidance that is dictated on their site. Didn't hear anything back. Naively assumed everything was great. Got a text a week ago that they're about to charge my bank for my ISA. Nobody Ooh. will answer any questions about this. And it turns out there has been a long historical precedent for this happening. So there's like a lot of sketchiness around Interesting. operational stuff. So how do you feel about it? Because I mean, I could understand one argument, which is that even if you get a job in a different field, presumably they did give some value to building up your career and your and your image and probably some network value also in landing right. that job, perhaps. So are do you feel conflicted about it? Do you partially feel like it's fair enough, but also a little sketchy or what's your take on it? Honestly, I think I totally understand the argument that if they provided me some network value, right? Like that's the main value of colleges as they stand. That's fine. They came to me and said, hey, actually, you're not doing data science. We think we provided you some value. Give us money. I would feel more compelled to give them my money, but just not responding and not dealing with it. Like I know, I know Lambda employees check Twitter all the time. And I've also tweeted about this on Twitter a lot. And so I know people have said like, there's somebody who could hypothetically help me resolve this situation. And that's not happening. has been the case for many other people. And so I right. think that general attitude towards their students, which again, I like was in a group chat of students having legal issues for a while. And it's like all sorts of stuff that falls under this guise is just not great. Um, okay. They're just very public, publicly faced, you know, they're tweeting, like the CEO has been tweeting about like, we're giving out like free digital healthcare consultations. And there are people who will randomly get moved back in their course for a month. And they're like, I just rather I'm not losing a month of salary that I saved up for rather than like for online mental health. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to wager that they're not responding for legal reasons, probably. Right. It must be a really touchy legal point and their attorneys probably say, just don't touch this. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm about to dig into like what the responsibilities are in terms of answering people about the ISA yeah. soon, obviously, but I just think. Okay. And how was your experience good. in the school? Did you enjoy that? Did you find that? Did they add a lot of value or what do you think? I think so. I think the primary value they add is the middle chunk is like a a project based cross functional. So there are other courses like UX and like web development or whatever, and you build a project with another team. Nobody there, there are very few, there are a lot of teachers who have good engines. There are few people who are genuinely good at teaching, and even fewer people who know how to make digital curriculum that's effective. I think that's like the issue of a lot of digital education things is like the platform is one venture, Khan Academy, like maybe gets a good portion of that right the curriculum is like a whole nother thing and the mm-hmm. teaching of that is like a whole nother thing and so lambda school is just going at all of these all at once. uh a lot of the curriculum okay in practice but the assessments change week to week um the primary people you're talking to are students who they basically if you fail um or you don't assess accurately or like highly enough on a test they push you back a month and that's super arbitrary they're changing those tests like every few weeks or so. And the people who do that then are out of a month's salary. They only tell you to save up for nine months of not having a job while you're going through Lambda school because that's how long the program is. And then they often say to these people who are suddenly out a month of salary, look, you can be a team lead. We They pay, I think, like $15 an hour to team leads. And you can do that when you only have four weeks of data science experience under your belt. So there's a lot of people then your primary point of contact is of like this string of Python doesn't work. And they're like, I don't know what that is. I can tell you what it better, but like, I can't even give you any overarching principles for like what we're learning because they're brand new to data science as well. Right. So I think that is the biggest current flaw. Um, I would say there's a lot of ordinal chaos in general. Like they're really trying to scale up way too fast. The value is their Their focus is not on the students. Their focus is very much on external um, appearances. And it seems like they're just falling to a lot of the same stuff that like traditional universities is, which is like administrative chaos. You can't get through to any of the important people you need to talk to. Nobody's answering for. Interesting. Interesting. Inside look at Lambda school. Cause yeah, yeah. it does. It does seem very cool from the outside. And it, it seems, it seems like this really lean operation that is doing impressive numbers with an impressive mission and, yeah. you know, they're moving fast and, and really disrupting yeah. something that a lot of people want to see disrupted, which is education. So yeah. uh, it's really interesting to kind of hear an inside story on, on what it's actually like. I mean, my heart kind of goes out to them though, frankly, cause I could not imagine scaling up something like that as, as, as rapidly yeah. as they are. It's, it must be so hard to manage that and to actually gives all students uh, an, an ideal kind of experience. I, I, I can't imagine right. the, the difficulty of it. There's a whole nother track, the UX track that they actually basically actively canceled in the middle of it and told students that they like needed to pay for the half that they had already experienced, even though they weren't programmed because people were complaining so actively that it was just atrocious. Teachers would come in not knowing what they're supposed to be teaching and all that type of stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like an operational nightmare. I mean, it sounds so hard to do that with so many people so quickly, but interesting, very interesting. So, okay. So you are, so you're a Christian yourself and you go to Liberty university and you're like, fuck this. I'm out of here. I can't do this. Is it because it was too conservative or what? No. Uh, I mean, so even more context, I went to Christian K through 12 school. Like I'm used to rules. I'm used to dress codes. Like I understand the value of that to an extent. Um, but craziness like Jerry Falwell Jr. uh, who you may have read about this man (laughs) 
lots of Politico articles about his activities in Miami and all that type of stuff. Uh-huh. He's like pretty tight with Donald Trump. Um, and yeah, there's the school is just, um, I have a lot of issues with academia, but I think Liberty was in many ways the like worst versions of this, which is that my experience with like Christian Christians and academias and intellectuals before was that the school I went to is so thoughtful. We had to write a senior thesis defending our like theological beliefs, argue that in front of a panel of people who were very thoughtful as well. Um, we're sort of given the space to argue really anything we wanted as long as we defended it thoughtfully. And Liberty University was just about the opposite of that. You couldn't argue with professors if you did. The entire everybody in your class is like, "What are you doing?" You're arguing. Uh, so it like, was all it was all like Christian dogma. No, no questioning. Yeah, it just was everything they were teaching fairly outdated. The yeah, okay, there was interesting. Not a lot of encouragement for discussions or debate, which okay. I found very jarring. So you, so you drop out of there and then you're looking for resources. You're trying to put together your own thing, looking at Lambda school, decide to go with Lambda school. And yeah. it sounds like it was a mixed, it was a mixed bag, but it did ultimately, you did ultimately end up with a job. And uh, so now you're doing, now you're doing early seed stage uh, research for a yeah. venture capital fund. And so right? in between that, there's a, there's a few things that went down. So okay. I had Lambda school, Liberty was in 26 and Lambda school was a few months ago. But in between that, I, worked at a tech research company for a while, an internship that sort of turned into a job. And then I found later two random people who were running this startup that was about basically running experimental educational initiatives uh, for like quote unquote cutting edge STEM and entrepreneurship areas. So like computational neuroscience, uh, various areas of aerospace, additive manufacturing, whatever. Um, And so that was where I worked for a long time in the middle. That was a lot of fun. They basically taught me everything I know about machine learning there. I mean, I learned a lot of it on my own, but they assisted, so. Right on. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And how long have you been on Twitter, given that that's the main Ooh, way I know you? Just what? about since I was in Liberty University, coincidentally. I think right before that, but when I was like going crazy because suddenly I didn't have anybody to discuss whatever was on my mind with Twitter and sort of like, I guess, like post-rationalist adjacent people became a community that I got exposed to. Um, okay. Yeah. So you seem fairly well networked on Twitter. Is that fair to say? Are you friends with some pretty influential people? That's the vibe I get. I guess. Sure. Like, I mean, it depends how you. Yeah. No, it's followers follow me. And right. No, it's no big deal. I was just, I'm just kind of uh, doing a little vibe check there. I, I get the mm-hmm. sense that you're you're pretty well networked. And if you I guess you haven't been on Twitter that long. So uh, I'm kind of yeah. curious when you when you first got on Twitter, how did you kind of build your your Twitter niche? How did you build your Twitter persona? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, A, I have a bunch of alts, a bunch of alt accounts. Yeah, I think currently I have six. How do you um, how do you how do you write content for six ac- accounts? I mean, so the point is that basically, like, there is a bunch of bubbles on Twitter, right? And like, I'm sure you know that. And those groups, like there's all really ways, like I think design is so interesting in general, but there's a lot of interesting ways to signal who you are. There's like the weird sons, right? Like I'm sure you've seen them. It's like just sort of like admiring and setting their in-group behavior is so interesting. So you can like make an account and like get in with them and sort of like practice talking like them and like understanding their ideas. Like it's like, it's like learning a foreign language, right? Like you immerse yourself in each of these little bubbles with a separate account. And right. But that's the- hard. That's hard work. It's time consuming. So how do you do that for six accounts? I mean, I don't do it super actively. It's like I, I have like an urge, learn, like I'll find something that's interesting or I feel like if I find a community that is interesting and I think the people in it are too specific 
in a way that like I couldn't uh, infiltrate them with my main account. Then I'll be like, okay, either pivot an, pivot an old alt account that I'm not using that much or create a new one and see how I can sort of like slide into that and, and figure out what's there. So wow. it's not, it's not like, I don't, it's not super active. I don't like my job. It's just like, as right. I feel. And how much of this is just for fun and exploration and how much of this is a kind of like Machiavellian power drive to build your network in a maximum oh, way? That's a great question. I mean, I don't think it's about building my network because few of the, I mean, it's about like exploring people and like why they're motivated to do things very rarely am I like, let me trade like the smartest people in tech or like, no, but no, but I'm sure like sometimes do you ever, do you ever have like a really good tweet on your main and you really want to get the word out there? So you go to all your other accounts and retweet that, that tweet. No, no, because a, that is like the easiest way to expose yourself. Like I figure out who's people like mutual friends who have alt. I will figure out who, who their main account is because when you do that, it is easiest way to like trace back. Yeah, but do you What's think that? people are really doing that tracing? I don't think so. I mean, I have two bot. I have two bot accounts that yeah. are that are that are sinister, pretending to be human bots. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and if anyone ever found them uh, and looked through the TL, you would know for sure it's Justin's sinister bot because it it just retweets my shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it depends what your goal is. But like, my goal is to see how seamlessly I can sort of like I don't know, just sort of camouflage myself, and That's if cool. I retweet my main account that is like antithetical to that purpose um yeah my my two bot accounts they what what they do is they they churn out uh tweets on uh via a markov chain algorithm based on it that was trained on my own writings mm -hmm. uh so so every like f every hour or something like that it'll tweet out uh, an auto-generated uh tweet that's trained on a corpus of my writings and then when mm -hmm. i want to like really signal boost one of my things I'll go and manually have them all retweet it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, Is hey, that... like I've talked to people who have like retweet their stuff. I had a friend like do that for me. Retweet from my main, my main content, but like in a timely sense, you know what I mean? Right. Like I understand that. I understand that as well, but it's less about like figuring out the mechanism is less interesting, but. That's cool. You must be like a natural, you must be naturally very social person if it's if it's relatively easy for you to kind of switch into different social dialects and play that that social in, uh, kind of game. Uh, I think for a lot of people, that's very taxing. Like I could not imagine trying to do that for six different people. I can hardly do it for myself at like a cocktail party, let alone like six others. Yeah, I don't know. It's like I'm probably like the extroverted extrovert. So I like analyzing people the most, but I don't want to like have the active engagement. I just want to sit back and do the analysis. I think it's like a... It's like sorting. Like I'm also a very visual person and like editing photos, like sorting. Like I don't know if you use Arena. Arena is great. Like Pinterest and a file system combined with like really content and like what's it called? All of Arena A R E dot N A. Oh yeah, I've seen it, but it, I never really had that like aha moment of why it would be worth doing. So make the case if you would. Um, I mean, a Pinterest and a file system. If that isn't compelling to you already, I'll go on. Meaning, <laughs> the, meaning, there's a local version also on your machine, or what do you mean no, by file system? No, no, no. It's just more. I mean, it's like about organizing like your research and or like content you want to access in a way that's more like. I think this is like yet another like project Xana do right. Like the whole hyperlink. Like, how do we get our thought? on the internet in a way that is like more natural to the way it right. actually occurs type thing. Right. I think it's like the better version of Rome. I hate Rome. The user experience is so it just it irks me. Like I yeah, like I'm the also idea. I'm also I'm also befuddled by this like Rome fashion that everyone's talking about Rome. I I played around yeah. with it. 
I played around with it once or twice, and I was just like, it's too. It, it, I, I don't I don't want to turn all of my thoughts into complicated webs. I'm trying to solve the problem of having complicated webs. It's like my my thoughts are already complicated webs. I want something that's going to cut through that. I don't want to like make hyperlinks between everything I fucking think. That's the problem. Yes. And that's what I like about Arena. It's like you are definitely buying into that a little bit, which sometimes I'm like, I don't I don't need this anymore. But it's like it is the minimum viable product. And so you are actually having to like think through those connections rather than just like, oh, these things are linked. And like that just makes everything more chaotic. I see. Works for my brain. But. So you think you think Arena is your favorite kind of personal curatorial uh, public tool? I mean, to be fair, a lot of things in my brain work in systems. So I have systems around like my pocket is integrated to like my bookmarks and like every type of content I engage with has a slightly different formatting system. But yeah, like, me too. Yeah, me Arena too. is like a main channel. Really? What? What's your? What's your like? What's your system that you are most satisfied with? Mm. I think the system that I've worked out that is kind of most robust and effective and efficient is the system I've built around reading online content, uh, specifically for generating snippets that go to my Friday newsletter that I send out mm. every week. So mm. I have a really dope little system that just works really well. And I think it's it's pretty impressively efficient. I do, I, I'm committed to doing a weekly newsletter every Friday, which I've been doing for something around like 15 weeks now. I've, I haven't missed a week. And uh, I pretty much just, it's a standard type of newsletter in that it's pretty much just like the best stuff I read that week. And that reflects kind of like the themes uh, that I'm known for mm. talking about and writing about. Yeah. And uh, mostly independent intellectuals on the internet. That That's kind of the main gist of it. But, and what I do for that, the system I built for producing that is mm -hmm. it's mostly leverages Feedly. I don't know if you know of or use Feedly. Yeah, which is yeah. An, I don't yeah, I haven't used it, but I know. Yeah, it's an RSS reader and it's pretty nice. I think it's, you know, of all the ones I've played with, it's my favorite RSS reader. So I have a ton mm -hmm. of RSS feeds, uh, but also there's a nice little Chrome extension that allows you to just basically store away anything kind of like Pocket or Instapaper. So any, yeah. basically... Uh, any bit of internet content that I read whatsoever, I've trained myself to, I channel it through Feedly. So everything goes to Feedly. It's a kind of catch-all uh, ubiquitous capture layer that I use for Feedly. Now, what's good about Feedly is Feedly has nice integrations with uh, Zapier, you know, this automation uh, platform. Yeah. And so what I do is whenever I, anytime I read something in Feedly, if I highlight something, if I use their highlighter function, that Ooh. snippet gets routed mm -hmm. through Zapier and it gets and it gets placed in a uh, text file in my Dropbox, and uh, yeah, but not just that. What's sweet about Zapier is you can format it on the way. So basically, I have uh, custom colors and HTML formatting wrapped around the highlights when they get mm -hmm. dropped into my Dropbox folder. So basically, on um, come Friday when I'm ready to send out the newsletter, it's pretty much all already drafted through the Zapier automations. And all I have to do is copy and paste from that file and then uh, paste it into my in, into ConvertKit where I send out my newsletters. Uh, so I have like a pretty jazzy, nicely styled uh, kind of curated newsletter, pretty much done all automatically through Zapier and Feedly. Uh, so yeah. I think that I'm, I'm pretty pleased with that. I have a bunch of other little systems, but that's the one that comes to mind that I think I'm most pleased with. Are you slightly off topic, but I've been talking with a lot of people about this. Recently. Do you ever get worried as like a thought influencer of some type that you will be canceled on some platform and feel the need to like 
think of a way to centralize your audience? Like is a newsletter in some way an effort to like do that or not? Uh, yeah, it is definitely. I, I'm, I mean, I think everyone today who's interested in thinking creatively and freely over a long period of time, like if that's a long-term value or mission for you to think and to build a body of work that's creative and intelligent, I think you need to diversify your platforms for sure. And I think like you should put most of your energy into the email list just because mm -hmm. it's the most, it's the most disintermediated, you know, there's, there's, there's less political risk when it comes to email than any other platform. Sure. So yeah, I generally uh, subscribe to the, to the strategy of, uh, you know, I'm active on many platforms and I put out stuff on many platforms, but if I have a, if I have any say over it, I'd rather send people to my email and uh, build that up over time. That's like my main priority, frankly. Gotcha. I was talking to somebody who's like a TikTok influencer about like their, you know, their fear that TikTok's going to get shut down in the US and there's like a mass part of their audience. Yeah, I think people should be totally worried about that. I mean, especially if you're into anything that's like at all provocative politically, um, yeah. you know, yeah, for sure. I, yeah. So, so yeah, email's where it's at, frankly, I think. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, we like we could totally nerd out about this kind of stuff. You, you have any other systems you want to share that you're particularly interested in, or I don't think any that are none that are astounding. At <laughs> right, on. I like I never realize them until somebody else asks about them, and then I'm like, oh yeah, like I have a subconscious system that sort of like or, like it's less about the technical effectiveness most of the time, and more about like how to operationalize process. <laughs> right on, right on. Yeah. Now, so okay, so let's talk a little bit about this game of researching and evaluating seed stage startups. So for people who don't know what that is, it's basically just really early stage. Uh, and what do you, you know, you've only been doing this for a little while. So, um, but I'm just kind of yeah. curious as, as a, as a relative neophyte, uh, what's your kind of first impression of, of this world? It's interesting. I mean, like, I don't know. I did not see myself as going into VC. Um, I don't know. I've always found, like making predictions about patterns, like super interesting and something that I can't really prevent myself from doing. And so in that sense, it's kind of a dream job. Like half of my job is to learn and like read white papers, read research, talk to like really smart people that I've looked up to for a long time and just email them and say, hey, like I want to talk to you about your ideas and your writing and your thoughts. And they respond most of the time, which is even cooler. Um, and how old are you again? Uh, 22. 22, right on. So I don't know. I think I'm definitely aided by the process that for a long time when I like didn't really have like I left my family didn't really have a permanent place to live was like working one job and trying to figure out like what the heck my next career step was when I wasn't in college or anything and like thinking about like how to establish my own credibility and all that type of, type of stuff right. you have to think about. Um, I basically would just go to any sort of educational event I could either like sneak into or was like free to the public that I found remotely interesting. And so I think in some weird way for a long time, I've been preparing to do this because that was my main form of education was just throw myself into some environment that I knew nothing about, ideally, like way above my head, try and grok something they're talking about desperately or like a few of the main concepts and then ask some question that would like sort of develop some respect to the point where they would like engage thoughtfully and we could go from there. And so I think in that sense, it's been a very good uh, sort of like it's a good way to like test your prediction making in general and sort of like build up that ability. Uh, but also like, yeah, just get better at like patterns and like deep tech spaces. Yeah, right on. So I know that a lot of people in my audience, some people are, I have a pretty diverse audience, but some people in my audience are on the younger side and a lot of them are in their own way, just totally dissatisfied or alienated from the educational system also. And they're very interested in, yeah, alternatives and also kind of, 
idiosyncratic paths to successful careers outside of the normal paths. And so I think you're, you're, you're likely to be quite interesting to at least a subset of my audience in this regard. Uh, so I'm curious from your perspective and from your experience, kind of navigating a somewhat bumpy and uh, idiosyncratic educational path, you know, how did you land what a lot of people would see as, as, as a very good job uh, at such a young age? Do you have any kind of insights for other people, perhaps your age or younger, who are kind of trying to finagle a similar outcome in their early career? Yeah, yeah. I mean, A, so like the disclaimer that I'll make is for a long time, I don't know, for a long time, I was trying to learn a lot from other people's specifically weird paths. And I had like a good friend basically be like, too many people want to give advice based off the one experience they've had. And so much of life advice is just non-repeatable. And so I think that's very much probably true for me in some senses, but I think there are some principles that can can be applied. Um, I guess like, it also depends, A, like think about what you is, right? Like, why are you going to college? What do you want to get out of it? Like, how can you jump around the typical, like, if you already hate the sort of like credentialing system that you currently have to operate with through to get a lot of jobs, like think about ways you can prove that what the credential is proving uh, externally on your own time. And that's a good thing to think about anyways, because college degrees, I think, mean less and less in a lot of contexts. Like you almost always have to have some connection to a place you're applying. Like nobody applies via those random, like turn your resume and say, it's like nobody looks at those resumes either. So it's a good exercise in general. Um, but yeah, like get good at teaching yourself. I think like, people should be good at this anyway. Like there is a and all of MIT open course where you can access like the syllabi, the readings, like everything about a class online for free. And like you need to get good at teaching yourself that type of stuff and also find a space that works for you to sort of like it, like the iteration of ideas is like one of the most important things to I think developing intelligence. Like you can be brilliant in isolation. Nobody cares. You need like people who think differently than you, but like also are making a practice out of it to be in community with you, whether that's online, whether that's in person in a way such that you can get their feedback sort of iteratively and very quickly um, and develop sort of like a cycle of thinking. And like, that's true for writing, but it's also true for like informal thought. Like I think Twitter is great for this. Um, yeah. So in in other words, what you're kind of suggesting is that Twitter is not just this kind of frivolous place where you just kind of like type in words and it goes into the void, but it is actually real exercises in both uh, intellectual work and also kind of relationship building, but also in that in that kind of social membrane aspect of it, where thinking is in many ways kind of social and and collaborative, and really kind of you're kind of saying putting yourself into that and really investing in that is a worthwhile kind of aspect of building up to uh, your kind of first job in a career that you want. Is that what you're driving at? Yeah, for sure. And like, it doesn't have to be Twitter. And I think I don't know people who I'm obviously biased but I think I like talking to people who hate college a lot and often people who hate college have there's something that you hate about it that points to your taste for learning and so if you have an instinct of like I hate the way people write online often like I hate the way people write about their tech predictions I hate the way people tweet about their tech predictions you think it's so boring and not interesting and so like if you think if you want to put your thought out there in a different way, like think about why you hate the type of thought you see in academia, the type of thought you see from like tech Twitter people or whoever, and like think about that consciously and do the thing that you want to see in the world. So cheesy. <laughs> but like, I don't know, like there is not a diversity putting out their thought 
different ways, like truly different ways. And everybody's like, oh, like even on Twitter, right? Like people are like, what type of account are you? Like, are you a tech person? Are you a philosophy person? Are you this? Are you that? Like, it doesn't matter. Are you an e-girl? Yeah, right. Are you an e-girl because of Twitter account? Like, I don't know. It's just like, if you have the good Tate College uh, (laughs) and you have like interests that you can't help yourself from learning about anyways, like just put that out online. I think inevitably if you ask questions and Twitter is better than anything else to like engage with the people that you think are smart, eventually you will develop like a community of people around you who are interested in like what feels like what nobody else might be interested in. Um, Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I definitely buy that. And I've seen I've seen that happen time and time again. I think there's a certain person out there, though, who's kind of thinking like they don't really know anyone. And they feel like if they just started tweeting a lot or putting stuff out there that no one would really notice or it wouldn't really work to grow their network. So I'm kind of curious, like maybe in your personal experience, like how, how did this stuff play out for you? How did how did being active on Twitter actually maybe you could give us some examples or, or something like that? Of how, how did this stuff kind of materialize into opportunities for you? Yeah, I mean. Um, I guess like one caveat for in response to what you're saying is like, don't just like also nobody likes the person who is like, I have a sub stack, I have a sub stack, like read my whatever, just because like, if you don't give people context or reason to read your thoughts, like, obviously, you need that as well, like you have to thoughtfully engage with other human beings, like, it's about like a full relationship with people. That's why like Twitter is better than LinkedIn for job searches, you can actually like engage with people as humans and the robustness they are. Um, mm. And so like, don't nobody is going to follow your Twitter account. If you're just like, here's my tech predictions, like give me a job or whatever. Um, Like, I don't know. I think it definitely helped that originally when I was at Liberty, I was like lonely, bored, upset at like whatever the heck, like political stuff was going on. Um, And so I developed like a lot of relationships actually with people that I thought were smart. A lot of like anonymous accounts, uh, especially it was weird. Like in the and when you say yeah. relationships, you mean this is taking place through replies and DMs and what? Yeah. yeah. Like DMs, I mean, I don't know. Like I, <laughs> over the years, I've had so many crazy like random Twitter things. Like first I would take, I got a ticket to this girl, Leslie, what is her last name? Barhart or something. It's a big InfoSec Twitter account with like a hundred followers. She didn't follow me or anything, but it was just like, if anybody wants tickets to this hacker conference, like DM me and make your case for like why you want to learn about it. You have to be an outsider to the thing. So I DM'd her. She gave me the ticket for free, paid for me to go up to New York and like go to this conference. And so while I was there, I was like, I'm going to meet all like my Twitter friends in New York. Um, and I think I just like tweeted like, hey, if you're in New York, like let's hang out and then DM people in New York. And I met like the very first person I met was somebody who's not. Um, and I had no, like I talked to them before. I DM'd them. Um, but I thought they were super young. They weren't. Uh <laughs> like making efforts not to give any more <laughs> information yeah. about them. But basically it was like, we had an amazing conversation. Like Twitter is so good at finding people who are like similar to you in ways you wouldn't think, but um, started doing that a lot. I like tweeted, I think about a year ago, like there's some quantum, a quantum computing event at the Italian embassy and was like, Hey, anybody on Twitter, if you're going to be in DC, like come to this with me, it'll be fun. We can like chat and hang out. And um, Emma Salinas, who's like now a good friend of mine was like, Hey, like, I'll drive up from North Carolina, stay at your house. And I was like, sure. I've never met before it, but that's fine. Um, and we had a great time. We like hung out until late in the night and like hung out with some of my other friends and like I love her to death now. And so like, that's cool. yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've definitely, I've done similar things. I've met up with a lot of people from Twitter and uh, especially now in the pandemic mode, I feel like most of my friends are actually people on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. yeah. Um, like people I actually talk with on zoom and stuff like that. I, I feel like it's kind of interesting how that's worked, but, um, yeah. okay. Interesting. So yeah, the, the, the basic lesson I'm hearing from you is that you have to not just like type things into social media and click send, but, uh, or click tweet, but you have to actually like really go out of your way to, uh, be involved in and reply to people and DM people. And, uh, yeah. if you're going to be somewhere, mention that you're going to be there and, and invite people to things like really kind of be a good, you have to go out of your way to be an active citizen really. Yeah. And when you're young, like your value is like time. Most, like most of the, the greatest thing you have to offer is often time. And so it's like, if somebody needs something like maybe offer to like read over their draft of stuff, like engage and show people that you care about their work and then that they will like reciprocate eventually, not in like a calculating way, but just like be thoughtful. Like don't just yeah. ask people you admire for their time for no reason. They get a billion messages doing that already. See that. Yeah, that's actually a good little tip to offer. Just offer to do something like yeah. obviously not not too onerous on you, but just offer to do yeah. something that you you can give a little bit of time to. Even if right. people don't take you up on it, people will kind of remember you positively for it. Like I, I've I've re- I've been I've been lucky enough to receive some offers. Like people will randomly DM me and say, "Hey, I'm willing. I, I you know if you need a proofreader or if you need this, happy to yeah. happy to um have it." Uh, but realistically, I never really like get around to the the DM will get like right. swallowed in a day or two, and I'll yeah. never get around to it. But I will occasionally like, I'll see them and I'll just be like, Oh, they're cool. I'll kind of remember their face or their avatar or whatever. And I might even like follow them back or whatever, just because they're cool. And that's nice yeah. to have, you know, and I'm, yeah, I probably yeah. won't even, I probably won't even use your labor, but like, thank you. Yeah. And I'm happy to consider you uh, an associate, you know? Yeah. I literally used to do that. If you ever need anybody to edit anything, like anybody can edit, anybody can do it. So yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, okay. Interesting. Cool. So maybe we could talk a little bit. I don't want to keep you too long, uh, but we could talk a little bit about, um, let's talk about VC a little bit and, and the whole world since, I mean, I know I have some buddies, I have some buddies who are founders and some buddies I've, I've met some like legit investors o- over the years, but I'm, I'm nowhere near that world personally or sociologically, really. I'm not embedded in it myself. Um, yeah. So as a young person, you know, you probably have relatively, you know, uh, fresh eyes for this kind of thing. Like what's, what, what's, what's, what's your take on VC as a whole? Like what's maybe the, are there particular kind of fashions or, uh, particular types of craziness at the moment that you, that you want to, uh, flag for us? What's going on in VC world? Yeah. I mean, people are chaotic on Twitter. First of all, everybody knows that on clubhouse also, uh, like people love to gossip about people, especially when they perceive that they like have power and the freedom to do so. What do you think <laughs> most so, VC, what do most VCs get wrong from your youthful 22 year old perspective? Like looking, looking at these like big wealthy men, you know, like what, what yeah, do you, what yeah. do you, what do you think is the main thing they don't understand? I mean, I think understanding like the vibe of a person is huge. I don't know. What does that mean? What does that mean? I don't know. Like just, you can tell a lot about, I don't know. Like Like, bro, vibe, vibe check, bro. Yeah, exactly. Like I tweet vaguely. (laughs) Well, a lot of them are kind of like autistic and right. Like they're, they're kind of like hyper-focused and that's not very hyper-focused, very autistic. And sometimes it can, it can mean they're, they're not able to check the vibe sometimes. Is that fair to say? I don't know. Like I have autistic friends who are maybe even better at vibe checking than anybody, but I think, I think the biggest thing, the like actual biggest thing that I see is that just people know a little bit about one thing and expand that to thinking they know a lot of things about all the ad- adjacent areas. And it's mm. like the, the, the part why I like working with the people that I work with is that I think they recognize that the part that's cool about being a VC is you get to sort of like 
we're thesis focused, which means we like write out our theses on areas we want to invest in. The goal being that we have like some common body of thought and then bring that to the people who are way smarter than us and say, tell us where we're wrong and like argue with us. Um, And I think a lot of VCs miss the like argue with us and tell us where we're wrong because certainly you know like a lot more as somebody who has spent like a lifetime like working in this industry than us um and like that's the valuable part of the job in many ways i think is like having people want to have that conversation with you all the time across many domains um Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know people just love to pretend they know about everything all the time right on do you do you by any chance know this guy uh eric torenberg i think his name is do you know this i don't I, I mean, I see him on Twitter. I like don't know him personally or anything. But. Oh, because he DM'd me right after I said that you were coming on the podcast. He DM'd me. And I think he was inviting me on his podcast. I think I'm going to do his podcast. But anyway, it oh, came... It, well, I only mentioned it because it came right after I, I tweeted about you. Uh, so I was guessing he knew you or something. But I think we've had like vague, like proximal sort of like interactions, but not well. Right on. I was just yeah. curious. Cool. Yeah. Um, I wonder how many other people we know. How, I wonder how many mutual friends we have other than default friend. Probably a bunch. I mean, you said Probably that you're kind, of, you're kind of in the post-rationalist sphere. Is that how you would describe it? I don't even know. Like, I think that, A, like nobody actually thinks they're post-rationalist or whatever. But I don't know. That just was like a community that I, that started wow. sort of like my Twitter right. connection. Um, well, yeah. I also, you seem to be adjacent to some of the urban people. I mean, you interviewed Cardis. Yeah, yeah, I definitely I'm adjacent to Urbit people. Yeah. Are you on Urbit? Uh I have a plan. I haven't like even fully or I actually partially set it up. But are you are you bullish on Urbit? I think it's super cool. I mean, like the thing I'm obsessed with talking about is that like there's a very trending there's like it's very trendy to be in tech and say that you're building like something that's apolitical and just like the ideals of the good thing. And I think Urbit is bold enough for better, for worse to say that's never been true. And like, we're actually going to explicitly voice the ideals we think tech should take on. And if that overlaps with politics and religion, like so be it, that's sort of inevitable in human nature. Um, And like, we're going to tell it how it is. And if you like it, then come join us. Um, Mm. And I think that is like a very powerful vision and sort of pivot in general. I also think a lot of, you know, genuinely very smart people work there. Yeah, right on. You know, it's kind of interesting thinking about you and I uh, meeting today because, as I said, it was pretty random. Like, I don't know that much about you. I pretty much just I take I take uh, recommendations, though, pretty seriously. So if someone I know says like, oh, talk to her, I'll just do it on on trust that it'll be cool. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because you I, I had I didn't even know that you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, too. Actually, I don't know. I don't know if you even knew that, but um, I didn't know that. it's kind of cool because this like I don't know. We're in this kind of moment where I think secularism is kind of has a decreasing stock price, at least to a lot of people's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's increasingly clear to many people that you really can't run a very good or happy or functional society on like truly uh, full full secularism. I think yeah. anyway. I think that's I think that's kind of becoming clear to a lot of people, and there's all this kind of renewed interest in uh, different types of traditional values and traditional value systems. And uh, it's just interesting because so for so long, you know. Uh, Christianity or religiosity in general was kind of seen as low education, kind of ignorant, anti-rational. But now it, it seems like there's this new wave, if you will, of of people that are increasingly interested in Christianity and perhaps even um, willing to call themselves Christian, as I am, and it sounds like as you are, but who are super rational people, super you know, as 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 teched up in science and and rationality as anyone, and and as you know, involved and and invested in 
you know, science and, and rationality as anyone is, but is not, but, but we're nonetheless, you know, increasingly interested in Christianity. So that's, that's really interesting because I didn't even know that about you, but I guess it's not for nothing. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence, right? Cause this is yeah. how social, social networks work. Right. So, um, I, I, I'd love to, you know, talk to you a little bit more about that. Do you, are you connected yeah. to many other like super rational based Christians online? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I actually just went on, so I don't, do you follow Henry Zhu by any chance? No. Um, so he runs this cool podcast called Faith in Source, um, which is about like, I mean, he, the first episode was him talking about how like maintaining open source communities like overlaps with a lot of like good practice for like the way we see communities as Christians and like oh, faith cool. more broadly. He's a Christian. And so we talked about a lot of this stuff. And also just I the meme of like, can we unbundle the church and like tech people being like, okay, like, look, like rationality and logic just does not cover all the bases. Like, what do we do? We have to like reinvent church. Like, is it core power <laughs> yoga combined with this? Like how can we reverse engineer it without like yeah. God or any actual core beliefs that like motivate us as a community to be adhered to one another. Right. Um, and yeah. Yeah. So I've definitely found more. Um, I didn't talk about it for a long time that I was a Christian because um, I like, I wrote, I actually, so I wrote pieces that I mentioned earlier on basically the realm of faith and science uh, and how they overlap because I mean, I thought the question was interesting in general, but my dad is like an aerospace engineer um, and was raised in like a very Catholic household and sort of like lost his faith. And both my parents were very like politically Christian, but like, I wouldn't say like practicing at all. Mm -hmm. um, but the school I went to was very compelling. Faith definitely grew there. Um, and so my dad had a lot of thoughts on like science says we don't have souls. Like we're the chemicals are telling us how to act like all that type of stuff. Um, and so I just wanted to write about it. And I, I don't know, definitely a God thing that it's, it's been so applicable in real life after the fact since you know, 2016 or whatever. Um, and I started tweeting about it recently. Cause for a long time I was like, I don't want to be that person who's like, arguing with people online like took apologetics high school classes in high school and all that type of shit and like I didn't want to be that person and I knew other people didn't want me to be that person so I was like it's fine somebody yeah. uh do you follow VGR uh VG oh uh Venkatesh Rao yeah 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 Yeah, I follow him I, I can't say I know him well I, I like I don't know if he knows who I am but I know I like him a lot I think he's really cool yeah yeah, yeah, that's totally fair. He's doing this thing called Threadpalooza and giving people prompts they should write threads about. And so he did religion for me. And so I basically made this, like, I don't know, detweet thread being like, here's what I believe about religion. Because um, I think a lot of people have heard, like, oh, she went to Liberty University. But, like, she's not, like, she believes in science. And, like, right. you know, how can those two go together? And so people are very curious, I guess, and have had a lot of good conversations. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm super interested. I'm, I'm super interested in this little subculture uh, because yeah. I think... I think it is increasingly clear to people that just naive, generic secularism, I think that's actually, uh, that's, that has a decreasing status. I think that's, it's increasingly clear to people that that's actually kind of dumb. And, yeah. and, and I think that's going to increasingly be seen. Like if you're just a basic bitch atheist, that's going to be seen as like low status in, in yeah. the coming, in the coming future. And right now I think Christianity is still very low status in, uh, in the professions in tech and, and, you know, in VC, presumably in academia for sure. Um, I mean, you'd agree with that, right? Like it's definitely still I have no clue what the like religious landscape of VC is actually like, well, you don't experience it like as a Christian you in, in these worlds, you don't kind of feel like you don't, you don't kind of intrinsically know like those parts of your worldview are kind of looked down on. 
Um, I don't know. Like, I definitely see it ext- like in the tech world for sure. Like you see it, but yeah. you know, 30 minute zoom calls at a distance when you're meeting other VCs, definitely hard to like suss out what their religious sure. beliefs are. But sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No. Uh, anyway, all, all I was really getting at was I think like basic bitch secularism is going to be decreasing in status. Mm-hmm. And I do think it, it, there does seem to be some early possible signs that Christianity is actually increasing in educated circles, I think. Uh, because of the, just the utter failure of of secularism as as a kind of uh, basis for 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 yeah a, a, a functional life and a functional community, um, yeah. so yeah I'm just I'm always very interested when I meet like other really smart uh, kind of educated and you know um, it, it's hard it's hard to it's hard to summarize it but when I meet people who are Christian and they're also you know, like movers and shakers in like higher yeah. status fields. It's always really interesting to me. Uh, and I feel like there's more and more of that, but that's just an impression. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I was talking to my boyfriend, his, uh, like there's an interesting study that I think he was promoting for work, um, where it was talking about like the loss of faith in millennials broadly, like as a trend and what they attributed that to. And basically the thesis of this research was that like their, the generation, like their parents, and I think it applied to Gen Z too. I don't remember for sure, but their parents, the faith they saw was often like cultural and more specifically political so often that like the representation kids saw of Christianity um, was like, we vote this way or we talk about people this way because of our religious beliefs. And other than that, like not as important, like everything fell secondary to its political involvement. And I think that is like a very interesting to view the sort of like reaction to religion that I really saw in like the 2000s, the early 2000s, sort of like hit its peak. Scott Alexander also has a release about this. Um, yeah, I forget yeah. what it's called. But. Yeah, yeah. Interesting for sure. So all right, we're coming up on an hour. I don't want to keep you too much longer, um, but maybe I could ask you a couple more questions. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm kind of just curious about is since you're young and 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 you're a woman and uh, probably in the world of VC, you know, you probably have something of a minority status in both of those dimensions. I don't know what your particular situation is like, but I'm just kind of curious, like what as a young woman in these tech circles, what you might be able to see that other people can't see, you know? So I'm, I'm kind of just curious, yeah. like, now that you're doing research for, you know, seed stage investing, you know, are there like particular, is there a particular niche or a particular kind of concept that you're, you're dying to see, you're dying to invest in that's, that's not getting enough attention or, or, or vice versa? Is there, is there way too much attention in a certain area that you think is just like totally over? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is, it's, I did not realize until I entered DC actually like how crazy the diversity thing is even more. So how crazy it is that like so many people went to like top 10 schools and then did like their MBA in business and have had like this like VC plan for their life, which is just very interesting. Um, But it, but it is cool because the people that haven't done that and even some of the, like some of those people are really not to overgeneralize, but um, a lot of people haven't done that. It's like what their actual focus is there's just like all sorts. Right. So what's yours? What is my, wait, what is my what? What's your unique focus? Oh, oh, oh. I'm owning definitely. When I went through the Innova uh, personalized healthcare accelerator, I was researching um, basically like, I was really obsessed with a like federated learning type of like on device learning. So if you have like Google, Apple keyboard, uh, you're like your specific personal data doesn't leave your phone, which like when we're talking about HIPAA regulations for healthcare, that's huge, right? Because like healthcare hasn't really been affected um, by like the machine learning boom as much because of so much of the personal data regulation stuff. Um, and yeah, the way they do that is like you 
train a model on your device and this sort of like high level takeaway is then sent to the cloud so that you're like, I don't know, your um, social security number, if you were to be texting that on your phone, like using your Google keyboard isn't the thing that gets sent to the cloud or whatever. Uh, so I'm super interested in companies that are doing that in general. Um, it's like a difficult landscape for a lot of reasons, like partially because it's such a high, like the, the places that need this are not normally the, known for having like crazy cool ML teams. So you have to like educate the team and then also like make a beautiful project on top of everything else. Mm. Um, so that's definitely something. I'm writing a thesis on game engines right now, which is the software that underlies. Um, so like 3D rendering servers, like, physics engines, all that type of stuff. Um, currently have 30 pages. Bad decision to start out that way, working backwards, not down. But I think I'll definitely, like that I will publish, like really be looking for companies in that space. Um, uh, healthcare, I don't know. Yeah, I'm interested in like the people that basically will solve, solve, uh, just like applying ML to like super sensitive data, specifically healthcare stuff. I was researching like, basically using machine learning to understand uh, miRNA concentration, which people have known for a long time. A high concentration can be very indicative of some like renal cell carcinoma. And so, but that's also like, there's a lot of other variables that can influence that. And so a doctor realistically have time to sit down and say like, hey, have you had a common cold in the past week? And like do all that type of stuff, but it's great at that. So if you can solve the personal data issue of like a, like a wearable tracker, then that gets you interesting. Um, yeah, so that's, that is a main thing. I mean, we, what do I want to see more of in general? I don't know. Let me guess. Electric scooters. Oh yeah. I grew Honestly, I'm a huge fan of the electric scooters in Albuquerque. Really? Uh, yeah. The one that I have here is, uh, called spin spin scooters. Frankly, okay. I love, I love those little guys. I take, I take them all the time. They're closed down for the pandemic, but, uh, I, I like it. I gotta say. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I'm always, I mean, like compounds, like, I would say is basically we're, we, me having only been there for two months. Um, but the team is like really, really good at finding people who actually have like a core technical bet, whatever that may be. Mm. It is like very, uh, like non-popular, difficult to communicate at investors at this, the next stages. Cause obviously that's a huge problem. People don't think about a lot is like, even if you convince the first round of investors, those investors also have to make sure that the next round of investors can be convinced. Um, and so I think we are always interested in companies where we feel confident in the technical aspect of it. Like Mike and I both feel very strongly that like reading a lot of research papers, reading white papers, that type of stuff is the best way to find interesting companies, um, knowing the landscape yourself. And so I'm always looking for a company that is making some core technical bet that is very interesting and sort of like risky. And you might have a communication problem uh, in terms of like pinning the outside world, but like that is where our strength is. And so. I don't I see. There's not a lot of people who think about it exactly like that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So basically what you're saying is you focus on the technical feasibility and getting that rock solid. So Yeah, I mean, I think so a lot of people would say technical feasibility in some sense, but like like avatar based for example. So a lot of time when we have uh when we have a thesis that doesn't get like nobody is telling us we're like we're not convinced that we need to do any more refining on it. Um after we've done a lot of that and we keep looking for a company in that space, but we don't find it, we'll incubate a company, which basically means like create it internally. Um, and so the second to last company we did that with before I was there, obviously, but I work with founders. It's basically like, I'm, it's basically like a talent agency for uh, like digital, for digital influencers, not in the sense that like it's a digitized version of a real person. It's like not a real. Um, and so 
I don't know. I think avatar based media in general is really interesting. Yeah. That's um, interesting. Huh? Yeah. So right on. Yeah. 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 Maybe I'll make a bunch of avatars of myself. This kind of goes back to what you're saying before about having six Twitter accounts. There you go. Yeah, I know. I just was preparing myself unknowingly for, for working in combat. <laughs> what about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos? Is, is Elizabeth Holmes uh, broke or woke? Oh my gosh. Um, is she, was she, how do you see her? Was she a grift, a straight up grifter scammer or was she just a uh, kind of ambitious genius who just came up a little short? I mean, I think like most of the grifters, she was pretty like, genuinely convinced. I think that like, I mean, I this is true for a lot of smart people. You sort of like it, to to force your brain to make something exist. You yeah. overpromise, and then you like that is more motivational than anything. And I know so many people in DC who have worked for political campaigns that like look very similar, where the bosses are just insane, and it's like because they like believe in this like myth mythologized version of themselves. And like sometimes that works extremely well, but like only right up to a limit. And I think like a lot of brilliant people put themselves in that unfortunate position. And I don't think she's good. Like I don't like I'm not saying go do that, but I do think I like, do. I like her. I defend her. <laughs> I'm the only person to defend Elizabeth Holmes. I think she's Anna cool. Delvey, Caroline Calloway, like all yes. Um yeah, I think Caroline Calloway is also kind of impressive, I gotta admit. Who's the other one though? I do think she's a Anna Delvey, she was like the New York socialite girl i think she was like from somewhere oh, was she russian i don't know she's from somewhere else and came to the u.s and basically convinced everybody that she's like super high status she like beat out this other art person for this like hypothetic gallery she's gonna build but like very like all this interesting high society stuff and she like didn't have any money she was staying at this luxury hotel and basically just convincing everybody around her that like she was important and famous and, like, oh that's funny i i don't know if her case i gotta i gotta look into her yeah. i mean i think the reason the reason i have a sympathy with these people is because i think in a lot of ways they are a symbol for all the people around them as much as anything else you know it's like uh, an elizabeth holmes like to, to put it on one person to describe the theranos uh situation and that whole saga to kind of pin that down on one person as the as the cause of it and the representative oh, yeah. of it is okay. just not quite right. It's actually a, it's yeah. actually a, a truly networked social phenomenon that is actually right. being referred to when you use the, when you use the, the name Elizabeth Holmes, you're actually referring to a little social cognitive epidemic catastrophe. Yes. Right? And, yes. but, and, and I think we have this kind of very individualistic uh, mental model where we always pin the blame on one person as the kind of a scapegoat in a way. Uh, yeah. But, but in fact, what's most interesting is that this person and their 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 kind of charismatic uh, gifts, or however you want right. to summarize, you know what makes them unique in the story, is actually just a lightning rod for like a whole huge set of complex pathologies among the people okay. around them. And so I don't know, it, it's my own like little subversive thing to actually champion these people. Like you know, I I will die. I you know, Elizabeth Holmes did nothing wrong. This is what I will say. Mm -hmm. uh, even though it's not, it's not true. What's that? Did you fall? It is what it is. By any chance, did that make it to like your corner of Twitter? The like, I don't think I so. Mouth, I think. Tell me. You you might find a similar similarly interesting. I think it's like the Zoomer, like Gen Z version of this type of grift. Mm, I already forget that analogy, but basically, <laughs> this group of like really young people adjacent to the tech industry. I think some of them are like musicians, like designers, whatever. Um, basically we're all sort of like using that face, which people have described previous to the thing as it is what it is. Um, and basically every person who added it in their bio, once one person did started getting added to a group chat and they got up to like 60 people 
And they started just like doing funny stuff, like making mock-ups of like this app that would exist relative to this meme. And eventually they decided like, we're going to like do a scammy thing, scammy and or like performance art piece where we basically pretend that there is an app and get everybody to freak out on Twitter over the wait list. The even more brilliant thing was that when you have 60 people, nobody believes you have like 60 people on this team for this like fake app, right? And so everybody's like, oh my gosh, everybody else is talking about it. People were saying like, sorry, like we already have VCs on the waiting list, like can invest, like wait till the next round, blah, blah, blah. Just like building up hype in every single respect. Um, and then they also started saying like, hey, if you donate to like all these different like Black Lives Matter organizations, like you'll move up on the waiting list. Like just give us your money. Like maybe that'll be relative to like the amount you move up on the waiting list. We really can't oh, wow. And like just kept like building it up more and more. And then there's like all sorts of interesting like they just had people who had like every sort of specialty, you know, fan cams, like K-pop fan cams. Have you no. seen these before? <laughs> Do tell. So it's this video that like K-pop people, I, I originated with K-pop. Like a lot of times if you go to like a viral hashtag on Twitter now, you'll see them where it's like people comment and be like, Stan, like, I don't know, like Stan, Stan, like whatever K-pop group. And it's just like a video compilation often with like very specific music and types of editing of the idol that they're obsessed with. Or like, and and they do that partially, I think, to sort of like engineer virality for just like notability. Like we do should like worship our leader as well, like here in something totally unrelated. And sometimes it's specifically to like take over, like signal their mass power to like take over a hashtag. So if somebody is like being canceled and people think it's funny, the like K-pop stands will like use their fan cams to like take over like a, a trending like hashtag. Ooh, wow, powerful. I know it's it's very interesting. I like K-pop people think understand the web like much better than any of us. Yeah, that's but so, cool. Yeah, it's super interesting. I also think Zoomers see everything as algorithmic seems to be hacked in a way that like other generations do not. Uh, but they had people even making fan cams for the apps, and then VCs started like saying positive things, saying negative things. Somebody like started tweeting takes about the app and like the ethics of it. And they were like, I hate the privacy of the app just is unconsciousable, whatever, blah, blah, blah. The app doesn't exist. Clearly they were like, this is ageist, whatever. And so they started making fan cams of the commentary about their app. And it turned out they app did this at all. And it was like all a performance thing about like basically how easy it is to like scam people into following the hype for anything so right yeah. so so fan cam that is a term that refers specifically to that type of video that they make yeah yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll dm you it's like it's partially a stylistic thing partially a content thing and it kind of in the way that like meme has become more and more amorphous i think fan cam applies to more and more things but okay i'm gonna i'm gonna be the first person to make an, an elizabeth holmes fan cam oh for sure that would be I'm, great if i'm gonna take that, over tre- i'm gonna it. take over trending hashtags with like my i'll change my username to elizabeth holmes stan and uh, I'll like I'll, I'll I'll just tweet over and over again. Yeah, Elizabeth Holmes did nothing wrong. Yes, you need to like yeah for sure. <laughs> I I'm excited. All right, well um we got a few questions that we didn't get to, but it's okay, no problem. People they, we actually did. Uh, people asked some questions like Michael asked how to break into VC at such a young age. We pretty much did address that. So uh, in a few different ways. So there you go, Michael and uh, Jamie Sampson asks. Uh, you mentioned that you've met some high level investors in the VC world. Were you generally impressed by these people or did you ever experience a disappointing sort of Dorothy looks behind the curtain moment? So maybe, uh, if you're not too tired, we'll take this as our very last question, Nicole. Uh, I think Jamie's might be referring to something I said, but you can totally answer this also. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I would say generally, uh, this is generally true. I think when you meet people that, uh, are famous or you, there's some sort of aura or mystique around them in general, 
you know, you learn that they're just humans, right? And they just have, uh, you know, they're just like any other normal person uh, with strengths and weaknesses. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I don't have any particularly salacious stories or anything like that. But that's, I've had the good fortune of meeting, like, I guess, a handful of uh, quote unquote famous people. And my experience has always been that, that it's just, you know, they're just normal people. And uh, I don't know, I don't really get into celebrity stuff anyway. Like uh, when I, you know, I don't, I don't really put celebrities on a pedestal in my mind uh, to begin with. So I never really had like a big, you know, disappointment or disillusionment with meeting someone famous personally. Uh, I kind of expect them to be pretty normal and they, and they usually are pretty normal. Uh, So not a really interesting answer, I guess, but I don't know. Do you have an interesting answer to that, Nicole? Um, I think like, I honestly have not met that many investors, like high level investors specifically, mostly because I, it's easy. I think Twitter makes it even more easy than to like assess people and their vibes ahead of time. And so you're like, maybe I don't meet that person. They're not that exciting. Like I've met a few people who have, I don't know, who like their main thing is an investor and then like they happen to be an investor and just generally cool person. And then most of the time it's not a big deal. Uh, I think I was definitely unimpressed with like, oh, like SF as like hub of things, uh, which is like a whole nother topic. Yeah, I think people are just like, if I basically one of my very sweet younger friends flew me out to meet people there um, and was like, I think this is important, like good for your career and just generally you'll find it interesting. Um, And I think like maybe the intention would be like she found a job in SF by I think essentially like she got this grant that Tyler Cowen runs um, and was it's you can sort of like use it for a lot of things and used it to find uh, mentors partially. And she mostly did that by flying to SF, messaging all the people that she loved the most, like many of whom have a ton of like Twitter followers or like otherwise intellectual clout and like putting them in a room together and saying, I'm going to have a dinner, come or don't. And like basically all of them came and it was a smashing success. And she got a job, I think, and ended up going to SF like a few weeks later. And she's like 18 or something. Wow, that's an interesting tactic. Yeah, yeah, it's really crazy. Um, and so I think she wanted to help me in a similar way. And I went to SF. And I think if I were 19 and did the same thing, I would have moved there. Like, it's very, it's just another world. Like, people are building things all the time. And it, it's just another world. Like, if you felt isolated for having that mentality, like, it's very understandable that this would be, like, a, a compelling place to you. Um, but I think it's kind of crazy. There's, like, in terms of, like, well-rounded living situation, there's no intergenerational wisdom for, like, maybe slightly understandable reasons, which is that if you're doing something genuinely crazy, um, probably, like, the more separated mentally in any sense those people are from you, whether that's age or, like, life experience, then hearing, like, every time you tell a person your idea and they have, like, strong criticisms for it, most people are going to be feel very disencouraged by that. And so I think that sort of, like, naturally pushes like this sort of like intergenerational community um away in san francisco and i think that was very sort of like disheartening so i felt that way about like sf vibes as a whole um i mean don't get me wrong the hackers and stuff there's a lot of like brilliant really interesting people but disenchanted with sf as a city which is my replacement yeah yeah i i mean i only ever visited san francisco for one week and i did get to meet a handful of cool people uh and i enjoyed meeting some cool people but for me i I mean i've never uh i've never been i've never had ambitions in this world really like i've never been interested in raising capital for any reason whatsoever so uh take that so that's a bit of a caveat here i guess if you're interested in raising capital you kind of will have a different attitude towards all this but my personal take on 
the Bay Area. And but I would also say the same thing about New York City and other kind of high status social hubs is that personally, I'm just like allergic to social scenes in some way. Like there's, I don't know if there's something unique about me or what it is. I could just be a little weird in some ways, but like, I don't, I get kind of grossed out a little bit by any type of like geographically concentrated amount of like cool people. Like whenever something, whenever there's like a scene and it's cool and there's, you know, people who are, you know, famous or, you know, there's, you know, that just like, it basically replicates the like high school cafeteria vibe pretty much. And as soon as I, as soon as I feel it, I kind of get uh, a bit, I don't know, like grossed out. And I just want to run away from it as, as, as quickly as possible. Like I'm much more personally, um, I mean, so I'm not, I'm not like preaching to other people. I'm not saying you should not like, there's a good case to be made that if you're young and you're ambitious, um, there are yeah. many good, there are many good reasons to go into where the action is. So I'm definitely not saying don't do that, but I am saying, I do think there's a, there are risks to that, that a lot of people don't realize, which is uh, a kind of generalized social conformity and a kind of, uh, you know, you start, you start playing to a crowd um, based on what they think is cool and what they, what is in and fashionable and normal to them. And uh, I think there can be a lot of kind of perverse social conformity effects that, that personally, I, I just, you know, uh, I just try to steer clear of it. Like I'd much rather just be like, um, I'd rather be a big fish in a small pond, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, yeah. um, Like I went to where I, where I did my PhD, it was a good university, but a, but a middle tier university, you know, not an Ivy league school. Um, So we had like, all of our professors were super legit, really well published. And most of them did their PhDs at Ivy league universities. Um, But the, I went to temple university and so it was middle tier, middle tier, but big, well-funded, totally solid research university. And uh, I liked, I liked it because a lot of my, uh, a lot of the other students like were not that ambitious and that's fine. And that's just, some people are not that ambitious, but I was very ambitious. So it was like pretty easy for me to feel like I was pretty hot shit because I was just like more ambitious than other people. And there wasn't this like scene of like super powerful people. You know, I think I'm the type of person that in a scene of super powerful people, I'm going to become kind of, I don't know, like reticent or, or risk averse or something like that. Whereas if I'm just like, you know, I'd rather personally be like a young blogger in Nebraska or something like that in a, in a, in like a medium sized town and just be like the most genius, like creative, badass, like blogger and podcaster in like Lincoln, Nebraska or something like to me, that's like a more fun and energizing type of yeah. vibe uh, than trying to, you know, make a name for yourself in some kind of like cool kid circle. Definitely. Yeah. Like, I think I will always have a pretty core group of friends who just like isn't on Twitter, doesn't understand Twitter. Every time I talk about Twitter, it's just like, shut up. And so, <laughs> like, I think that's like a good balance to have. Um, like, it's nice to have the friends that you can sort of like be obsessively whatever about. Like, I, that was something I was missing for a long time, for sure. Um, but yeah. I, I understand like it's your it's just I always like I do the ones like I'm just gonna start asking everybody that I meet from Twitter do you feel the need to like constantly perform your persona from online in real life because I feel like so many people like want to project their like intellectual prowess like constantly and like nobody wants to live like badly right right yeah I think if, I just think if you're a young person and you're trying to navigate these things I think you just need to listen to what um, type of person you are like you need to you need to pay close attention to your own internal vibes and your own internal signals like what types of situations make you feel the most powerful and creative and capable and and that what what types of contexts actually uh, are correlated with you doing the biggest best most interesting stuff that you can and yeah. for some people that's going to be being in the mix of somewhere like the bay area but some people are going to be kind of uh oppressed by that that also right. so that 
it's a very personal thing. Well, Nicole, it was a people, pleasure meeting you. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but were you going to say yeah. something else? I was just going to say, if people are shitty, you think they're shitty and other people think they're smart, don't ignore that. Just like, don't, just don't like engage with those people or like follow them anymore. Like you almost always have the right instinct. Follow that. <laughs> I, yeah, I completely agree with that. Definitely trust your gut on that. And even if you're wrong, it's still going to make you unique in a way, you know, like whenever, I think whenever you have um, opinions that are different than others, like even if, if they're not, if they're just hunches, right? And it's not going to hurt anyone either way, yeah. if you trust them or not, it's always better to cultivate like the things that make you weird. Like even if they're wrong in some way, um, yeah. as long as not, as long as you're not like buying some hype that is a, a fundamentally false model of how the world works. You know, people, I think especially young people should generally trust whatever they think or feel that is a little bit weird because that's going to differentiate you, whatever you decide to do. That's my general okay. take. Anyway, Nicole, it's really nice to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet. Twitter friends, we're now, uh, I hope, to some degree, real life friends. Uh, maybe one yes. day our path, maybe one day our paths will cross. Where are you again? You're in, in what region again? Northern Virginia, and then I'm going to move to New York sometime oh. before September first. Cool, cool. Well, uh, yeah, my family's in New Jersey, so I'm I'm in the New York area quite often. Uh, and it sounds like we have uh, more mutual friends online than we even realize. I would bet. Uh, yeah. So especially in this post-pandemic world where I, I mean, I have the strong sense that so IRL social networks are going to become increasingly correlated with uh, online social networks in the way, just because, you know, our, our limited sense of what's real is, is increasingly merging with what the internet is. So um, I, I suspect there's a decent chance uh, our paths will cross at some point. Cool. Cool. Fun. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Yeah. Do I just peace out from the Zoom? You can just peace out from here. Yeah. Okay. See ya. All right. Bye, Nicole. Later. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. That was interesting. Uh, I I like the random recommendations. I mean, I've been following her for some time. I, I've known who she is for a while, but uh, having her on the podcast was a random suggestion from someone, whoever that was. Uh, thank you for connecting us and thank you for making the recommendation. That was interesting chat. You know, I like, I like having spots on the podcast that are fairly random where it's just like someone pops up on my radar and they're trying to do a podcast. Like, okay, yeah, just come on the podcast because you never know you know, you never really know what you're, who you're going to meet or what, what's going to come of it, you know? And actually this is something worth reflecting on, I think, because a lot of people, you know, if they start a podcast and it gets a little bit of success and they have a little bit of traction, a lot of people, their instinct is like, okay, now I got to grow this. Now I got to get famous people every time and more and more famous people. And then, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to dominate the world. Uh, and like, obviously there's some degree of that if you want to grow your podcast and, and it's fun to grow things. Right. So that's fine. But there is another element that I think people lose sight of, which is uh, that randomness is a is a really valuable thing, and you need to introduce a, a a steady stream of people that you don't really even know why exactly <laughs> you're having them on the podcast. And I don't mean that with any disrespect at all. Like I, Nicole seemed uh, like she was cool, interesting. She's very young. She seems you know quite creative and accomplished so far for such a young woman. And uh, so, but I mean, random in that I didn't really know what we would talk about. I didn't really know you know what what would come of it. Uh, but I like that. And podcasts are good opportunities for that. It's a good, it's a good platform to be able to introduce a steady stream of somewhat random kind of connections and conversations. And uh, yeah, people that I do podcasts with, I will regularly meet them later at some point. And uh, you just have that little, you know, you have that, that nice little basis with someone when you do a podcast with them and uh, you never know what will come of that. So that was fun. Uh, thanks to Nicole for coming out. I hope she enjoyed it. That's a weird thing about podcasting is you never really know if people enjoy it. You're kind of like, man, did they, maybe they've regretted that. You know, I'm always thinking that I'm like pretty, honestly, I'm pretty like neurotic in some ways. And whenever I finish a podcast with anyone, 
I'm always kind of thinking like, man, did they, did they hate that? Maybe that, maybe they were just like bored the whole time or annoyed. Maybe I said something bad. Uh, that is one of the bad things about podcasting. And then you don't actually get to, you don't get to do that kind of confirmation check because it's so uh, dematerialized and disembodied. So you never really find out, you know, if it was IRL, you could kind of you turn off the recording and then you, uh, you know, you can pow out a little bit, hang out, maybe have a, have a drink or something like that. But now when you're, when you're doing it on the stream, you don't get that cut off the conversation and then you're left to wonder, did we really understand each other? But it is what it is, right? That's the internet. I'm a pro at this shit by now. This ain't my first rodeo, baby. All right, folks, other life podcast, <laughs> subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to the channel if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube. I will be back on soon. I am moving out of Albuquerque soon. I'm going to Montana. <laughs> I don't know where yet exactly, but we have found a rental and we have applied for it and we think we're probably going to get it. So there's a very good chance I will be in Montana within two weeks, within three weeks max, let's say. So it's going to be weird. It's going to be interesting, but uh should be fun. So I'll keep you posted on my whereabouts. I'll be back on. I'll be back on the podcast regularly as always every week. And yeah, thanks for coming out tonight. Big thanks to my patrons as always. Shout out to the patrons. Very grateful. All right, folks. I'll see you next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.